0: I'm hopeful for the future of travel, but I think it is definitely going to be taking quite a hit over the next few months.
1: Hello, and thank you for downloading. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure a weekly series looking at unfamiliar places across the world, an aspect of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, Ian Oliver, also known as the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture, and the whys behind travel itself. So join me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. Look out of my window today. I can see the sun is shining, the sky is littered with white fluffy clouds and the backyard is in clear contrasting shadow. I can feel the warmth of the sunlight coming into the bedroom and I've had to close the curtains to prevent glare on my laptop screen. I'm not out in it obviously because well I mean yeah we still have a vague lockdown here. We're still allowed to go outside for essential shopping and I am out of bread again. Almost out of chocolate. I've got no peanut butter and I'm down to my last few squeezes of sauce which is not a euphemism. I do, however, have enough couscous rice noodles to see me through, and we're also allowed out for one exercise a day, but eh, I've left the house maybe three times in the last two and a half weeks. I popped to the Tesco Express just down the road a week and a half ago. That was a tense experience. The aisles in that place are quite narrow and the shop itself is relatively small anyway, but there were people everywhere getting in my way and no one seemed really sure where they were going. Added to that the fact that a couple of people were just idly chatting to each other at the junction of the aisles, blocking it up. And then when I was outside sorting out my shopping bags afterwards, there was the woman who walked into the shop and coughed exactly as she passed me. How rude! The next and latest time I left the house was on Sunday, nine days later. I only went to the very local shop about 230 metres from the house. Much quieter, much emptier. Only a mother and teenage daughter who were shopping for the same things I was at the same time and we kept doing some kind of weird socially distancing dance as we tried to get down the same aisles. I am feeling quite socially anxious right now. I feel that, you know, every time I go to the shop I'm just going to get stuck with lots of people or have to queue up or something. Or that everyone's going to be judging me for going out, peering from behind their curtains and making notes. Even when I went out to the local shop on Sunday, I went a different way to the way I came back. Because, well, people. Partly this whole thing feels weird to me. But then I recently did an entire post on social anxiety when I travel. And maybe the current environment is channeling the same negative feelings, but in a slightly different way. You may be unsurprised to hear I've not been out for any exercise recently. This is partly due to my desire to go for runs at a time when no one else is about. That time being around 6am. And you can whistle if you think I'm going to get up at 6am for a run. In fact, it's more likely in that circumstance I'll be going for a run before I went to bed. I've noticed this past couple of weeks my sleeping pattern has reverted to how it tends to be when I'm stuck at home. When I was at school, especially during sixth form, you know, age 16 to 18, A-levels time, if I was on holiday or something, I'd stay up all night listening to the radio and playing computer games. Civilization, one of the early football management simulator games, SimCity, that sort of thing. Or I'd be writing stories and poems and I'd go to bed around 4am and get out of bed at about lunchtime. I'm pretty much doing exactly the same thing now, replacing computer games with Twitter and Wikipedia, and it's a different radio station, but the sleeping pattern's still the same. It's not all just mindless sitting at my table, though. With regards to exercise, while I still haven't followed the lead of my friend Becky the Traveller, who has migrated from climbing Snowden to hiking up to Everest Base Camp using her stairs, nor occasional contributor to this pod, Shauna, from Shauna's World's variation of climbing Snowden on her stairwell, She lives on a boat and has precisely one step, which doesn't even give her full headroom. To be honest, I'd lose count and get bored. What I have been doing, and it was on Shauna's recommendation, albeit maybe two, two and a half years ago, is yoga. Specifically, yoga with Adrienne. I mentioned this in passing a couple of podcasts ago, when I said I'd done one 20-minute session. Anyway, she's got all manner of videos on YouTube, but at the moment, I'm only doing the beginner ones she made. There's a 40-minute one I'm doing every other day because I'm new to all this malarkey, and I have several observations. 1. There's about a 60% overlap between yoga and the stretches I do before a run. I'll admit that the yoga stretches are slower, more controlled and take longer, but the same principles seem to apply. 2. This overlap would be bigger if I stretched more in my arms and upper body. I've taken the view for the last 30 years that running is something done mainly in the legs. I know I'm wrong about this, and you use your arms to, for example, drive yourself up hills, but in the main, I choose to ignore that fact and worry mostly about getting my leg muscles to work. This has had the weird side effect of meaning I have really weak arms, and I'm pretty much unable to do a press-up, never mind lift myself up on monkey bars. Yoga, however, uses the full body, which is why I feel aches in my arms after a couple of seconds of downward dog, and why I feel a bit lightheaded when I stand up afterwards. My body is not used to this. And no... Don't ask me to do the plank challenge. I will hurt you. If I'm capable of hurting you after doing the plank challenge. I might just kick you or something. Three. Following basic instructions is hard for me, as partly I overthink, and partly I can't follow them. It's a dyspraxia thing. So, because I'm looking at 2D screen, even though obviously it's filmed in 3D, I'm not stupid, When she does things like the warrior poses, it's really hard for me to judge in which direction her head is facing. I'm also, and this is related to my lack of knowledge in biology, not entirely sure where things like where my hips are. Like, I know where they are in general terms, but when she says things like, put your feet in line with your hips, I'm going... I think I've got the knee over ankle bit sorted, but I can see that, I can follow that line. For the rest of it, my positioning, my lines, I can't visualise it, I can't tell which may mean I come out of this with a sore back. Who knows? I'm also going to be coming out of this with a sore toe, though not for reasons of yoga. The table I sit at has its stands more central rather than at the sides, because it's a fold-out table, so the legs of it are at the sides of the smaller form. This means I keep banging the little toe of my right foot into the solid wooden foot of the table. You'd have thought I'd be used to this by now, but no matter how many times you whack a toe against anything, it still freaking hurts. There are several solutions to this, but you know as well as I do, that I'm not going to choose the easiest and most logical one. I haven't just spent the last week going owl for various reasons, though. I've been doing a bit of blogging, perhaps surprisingly. After my series of blog posts at the start of the year about West Africa, and, by the way, my publisher, who has been out of reach and trying to get back from holiday, is actually now back from Greece, but she also fell ill with something, we're not quite sure what, possibly unrelated to the virus, so I've no further news to report on that score. Anyway, I thought I'd follow those posts with finally getting around to writing about my trip a year and a half later to southern Africa, when I backpacked and took lots of local buses from Livingstone in Zambia to Durban in South Africa. In writing the posts, however, I seem to have concentrated a lot on the politics, and I haven't even started writing the ones about South Africa yet. This is mostly Zimbabwe and colonialism. All good stuff. With regards to my podcast, I'm very close to starting up a Patreon, so people can subscribe to me to obtain extra content. I'll talk more about this next week once I know exactly what the extra content I'm capable of doing is. This will not include foot pictures. That's for OnlyFans. Split my branding and my target markets, don't you know? Despite not going out very much, and despite living on US Eastern time rather than British summertime, I have, remarkably, been quite social. A couple of the communities I circle on the edges of have been doing online events, meetings, discussions, and in the case of the Traverse Travel Group, pub quizzes, the last one of which I attended on my own and came 10th out of 31, which isn't bad given I know pretty much nothing about movies or pop culture after any point about 2005. The previous quiz they ran, last week I was in a team with my Twitter friends Bigsy Travels and Curious Claire, who may not have been 100% sober, and we came in equal first, because we rock. The Yes Tribe have you launched Yes Tribe Radio an interactive video on Facebook Live that they then turn into a podcast, and they broadcast a couple of times each week. And even the Unitarian Church I go to on a Sunday have started to do the occasional gathering using online video technology, which is quite cool and very personal. Sunday's gathering was all about hope and what it means to us. Which, of course, brings us quite nicely onto the subject of today's pod. I seem to be getting it better at doing those transitional links. I'd love to say it's a greater level of planning on my part, but that would be a lie, and one I'm sure you could all see through. Essentially, this is a travel podcast, and while it may turns down political, social, economic and sporty lanes, ultimately this pod wouldn't exist in its current form and style if it wasn't for the possibility of travel and a willingness to explore the world. There's been a lot of talk over on Travel Twitter about whether it's right or not to keep talking about travel in the current situation where pretty much no one's allowed to travel more than a couple of kilometres from their home, and even then not for sightseeing reasons, and those ruins I pass at high speed during the park run at Sheffield Castle have been there for centuries and will still be there when all this has passed and we can do park run again. And while I can see it being slightly depressing, a reminder that the world is different now. I don't see it as being offensive or being tone deaf, which itself is quite an awkward phrase and one I'm not really fond of. Indeed, I wrote a piece for a blog article by Jessica from the Crown Wings all about this. I'll link to her in the show notes. Uh, It was a post with several different bloggers' takes on how they saw this question, and it's definitely worth going to read to put my views in context with how everyone else thinks. But in a nutshell, this is what I wrote. I wrote that, well, I mean, my first thoughts were about how travel content at the moment is framed. It's framed in terms of escapism. We all know that no one should be going anywhere, that's a given. That that people are, is a whole different question. Rather, travel content right now falls into the same remit as, say, travel and wildlife documentaries on television. People don't see the likes of Sue Perkins sailing down the Mekong, or David Attenborough showing us condors in Patagonia for the purpose of encouraging us to go there. Indeed, in some ways they operate the same principle as I often suggest on my blog. They go to these places so you don't have to. It's educational, it's informative, it's not demanding you spend lots of money on a holiday right there, right now. Instead, people are specifically looking for travel content as a means to vicariously escape from their four walls, from their suburban sprawls. They can imagine themselves in places like Morocco when they see the pictures and the vid clips. It's the next best thing to travel. Indeed, quite often people won't be doing that anyway, even if they see information about a place that they feel is both interesting and accessible. A lot of it is to do with research. While no one views a blog post about Antarctica and books a flight and boat there the next day, well, probably some people do, but the vast majority of people aren't that flexible or rich. The same often is true of places like Italy and China. People often can't just down tools and fly away. Rather, it's about planning ahead to when they can. They'd be doing this anyway, even if there's no virus. They might view a blog on Siena, think, ooh, pretty, look at a map, realise there's so many more places in the region that are worth visiting, draw up a tentative plan, do more research about other places. Even the actual booking may not take place until several months down the line, when they have money or when they've arranged with their job or whatever to take the time off. Posting about travel content now isn't telling people to go now, it's giving people ideas about where to go when it's all resolved. There's a related third issue as well. Saying, oh you shouldn't be posting about travel, is arguably ableist and privileged. What about people who could never go there? people for whom a week in skegness is something to save up per year for, people who find it hard to leave their own house because of health or mobility issues, people who are legally or administratively unable to go to places because of visa issues, citizen status or political viewpoint. By saying this is not the time to talk about going away, you're effectively saying, well, because we can't go there, no one should talk about it. And that excludes people who could never go there regardless of pandemics. People who will never go to these places, so reading about them, watching them is the only way they'll know about them. Are you really going to deprive them of content just because you've temporarily been inconvenienced? Plus, think of the mental health issues and benefits. Isolation isn't known to be a joyful experience, and seeing the same flooring, the same view from the window, the same shops, and knowing you can't do anything to change them, requires things like travel content too. As I said earlier, escape. It's a bit like reading a book. You'll never go to Hogwarts, but it's nice to imagine it's there. If anything, this is the time we should be posting more about the world, of showing people what a fascinating place it is, because the chances are, where they are isn't a terribly motivational place to spend the next few weeks. All that said, of course, some of my logic doesn't hold up. People are still looking for travel content, but there's far fewer people out there actively searching. Certainly some of my Twitter friends have seen a huge drop in the number of hits to their websites. What has increased appear to be hits to places like TikTok. People seem, in the very short term at least, to be looking for a different kind of escapism. Not for pretty pictures of things far away, but for people putting cheese slices on cats' faces, purposefully badly choreographed dancing, or sticking bowls of baking flour to sideboards causing amusement when people try to lift them. Now might be a good time to be a clown. An official one, I mean, not a political one. We've enough of those. As an aside, yesterday I learnt that there were more active users of TikTok than Twitter, which makes me feel quite old. But I also learned that Twitter is better for developing a community, in that I found out from my Twitter friend Kirsty Leanne that TikTok isn't that good. If you're on TikTok though, go give her a look. She's creating her own niche on there and it's, she's cool and she's quirky. So, what do you hope for when it comes to travel once things settle down? Rihanna from Teaspoon of Adventure gives her views and hopes, highlighting the desire that people return to places that have been hardest hit by the virus and that she can personally go back to places that the virus prevented her from exploring properly.
0: So my travel hopes for when this is all over,
2: um, I guess my biggest hope is just, you know, I know the travel industry is super resilient. So I'm just really looking forward to seeing that. And, you know, the day everyone's finally allowed outside of their houses, um, I hope we're able to get back out there, keep exploring, support those small businesses that, you know, that need it, go back to places like Italy and China that really need that love but doing it in, you know, a more sustainable way, kind of taking this pause and learning something from it. Personally, I um, have Taiwan on my list. I would love to go to Taiwan in the fall. Um, Japan and South Korea would be really cool too. Um, Also in the sort of ramp up of all the coronavirus stuff, we had to leave Prague, uh, kind of last minute decision. Um, So I do feel like we have a little bit of unfinished business in Prague
0: and I'd love to get back to Europe as well.
1: Very similar themes are explored by Lucy from Absolutely Lucy, who had to curtail her long-standing adventures when the virus came.
0: For me, travel hopes are basically the one thing that's getting me through lockdown at the moment. I actually ended up having to interrupt a really big trip when coronavirus struck. I was in Colombia and had been travelling down through Central America and into South America. I'd actually just reached a really exciting point of my trip but had to cut it short and come back to the UK because the situation out there just escalated so quickly and I just couldn't be sure the healthcare system there would be good enough if things did go wrong and if unfortunately I did end up getting it. So I came back to the UK but I think for me that's very much feels like unfinished business. I know that one of my biggest travel hopes right now is that Once this is all over, whether it's in a month, three months, a year, um, I want to get back to that trip and continue travelling through South America. Um, I also had a working holiday visa for New Zealand and I'm just really, really hoping that I'll be able to actually use it and it won't run out before this is all over. More generally, I think for the travel industry, this is going to be a huge hit because this is essentially months and months and months where people are not going to be leaving their homes, Um, they're not going to be traveling. Um, I'm already hearing that there's some companies that are taking huge, huge dents in their profits. And um, there's talk of some companies folding. So I think, yeah, it's going to be a really weird time for the next year or two um, surrounding travel. Because even when this is all over, there's going to be a lot of people struggling for money, Um, perhaps they haven't been able to work for some months or have been laid off. Um, So even if we go back to normal there might be a lot of people who can't afford to travel for a few months or um, for several months even while they make up their the money that they've lost over this so yeah it's going to be a very strange time I think for the next sort of year or so but I do think also on the flip side of that because of the way this has hit the travel industry prices are going to be very low It could actually be once this is over and it's safe to travel, it could be a perfect opportunity to take a trip because I'm sure that just as situations before, like um, I'll use Sri Lanka. And after the terrorist attacks that happened over there, prices were really, really low because the tourism industry over there really wanted to, to encourage people to come back out and to support their industry. So it could potentially happen worldwide. Countries that have been the worst hit might have quite low prices and if anything it would be a great reason to travel there to support their industry and their tourism and to help them build themselves back up again so I'm thinking places like um, perhaps Spain places like Italy um, China even I think um, there might be a bit of a stigma around traveling to China so it would be a great opportunity to try and support countries like that Um, and the best way to help the people on the ground level is tourism it really does It gives people the chance to have jobs, people who are working as waiters and waitresses, people who are working um, in hotels, people who are, you know, on the on the absolute. They might be at risk of losing their jobs over this or they might be at risk of having less hours. They might not have been having any compensated pay while all this is going on. So this is your way of being able to help them, support them and keep them in work.
1: On a very different note, and much more specific, Ken, from Travelling with a Chair, a YouTube channel dedicated to travelling with a disability, talks about his passion for cruises, which have taken a bit of a bad rap recently, and his hopes and feelings for the future of the cruise industry. He sent me this post about a week and a half ago, and it refers to someone that's about to book a cruise. Who knows if they made it or not?
2: I see right now today, in so many cases, people taking two kind of opposite viewpoints about what the future holds for travel. And I think they're both unbalanced. Right now, I see people saying that they're going to start cruising again in April. In fact, uh, I was in a chat conversation today with a woman that booked a cruise today for April 13th. And I'm like, I don't think that's really going to go. I, I see other people that say they'll never cruise again. And, and as I said, I think those are both kind of unbalanced viewpoints. I think when it comes to resuming the cruise season, I think it's going to wind up being probably midsummer, uh, maybe late June, July. I'm hoping by September because I do have an Alaskan cruise booked in September, and that one I'm still not sure about. Uh, I, it wouldn't surprise me to see it not go, but I'm hoping that things will be back to normal by then. For the people that say cruising's not safe, I would postulate that. Cruising is safer than a lot of other ways people enjoy their time. If you go to the mall or you go to a concert or any other crowded public venue, nobody gets screened there for health concerns. Whereas on a cruise line, you get screened. It used to be that it was just a questionnaire and they'd check to see where you traveled travel to some extent. I think that going forward, we'll see that having your temperature measured as you get on the ship With the cruise lines being on the lookout for fevers and other signs of of sickness, will become a permanent thing. They also, I think, that we'll start to see people's passports being checked and look to see where people have traveled, so that if there is an outbreak of something, that they can stop uh, you from getting on the cruise ship. Those types of preventative measures make cruising safe in general. In fact. After they implemented those kinds of measures, my wife and I sailed on a March 2nd cruise. After that, we went to Disney World. I am self-quarantining, not because of the cruise, but because of I don't know what I might have been exposed to at Disney World. I would also say that it's important for those of you that like to cruise that when the cruises open up and we can cruise safely again, that it's very important to start booking cruises and start planning on traveling. In so many lands around the world, the economies depend on uh, cruises and the revenue that it brings. You think about ports like Nassau in the Bahamas that can have anywhere from ten to 15,000 people a day visit on cruise ships. That's a tremendous blow to their economy when those uh, passengers don't come to town anymore. For those uh, crew members whose families uh, live in countries where uh, income is very hard to come by and they support their families uh, by their jobs on the cruise ships. Cruising supports uh, the economies in a lot of countries, a lot of places around the world. And the one thing that all of us can do is when things get back to normal is to pick up and start going again.
1: Another different aspect is raised by Kate Frankie of the blog This Could Lead to Anywhere, whose day job takes her to travelling to places for work. Here she talks about her hopes for travel in general and for her in particular.
3: So for travel hopes, um, I think it would be great to continue with sustainability and being responsible. So we've been talking a lot about that before um, all of this happened and coronavirus kind of started and all of the travel um, was really limited so I would like to see us um, continue along that path and really start to be responsible be a lot more sustainable uh, look at the way that we travel the transport options so I think my hopes for the future are that we continue along that path And we don't forget what we were trying to achieve with that. I don't think I'll take anything for granted anymore with the travel that I do. I'm very, very lucky that I get to go overseas as much as I do. Um, But again, I'll be thinking about the type of travel that I'm doing, about really immersing myself in a place and kind of looking at the all of the small things, um, really making sure that I don't miss anything. Really just being in the moment, being present and enjoying the place that I go to. Where do I want to go after all of this is over and after we are able to travel again? I think I definitely want to go to somewhere in Europe. I want to keep exploring, finding new places um, and enjoying just being able to get out there and experience different cultures and countries Um, for work. I was hoping to do my first work trip to West Africa and I hope that that's still going to go ahead and I'm going to meet a lot of the work colleagues that I have that work um over there in country for us and uh, just build kind of relationships with them. Further afield um, in the next few years, I really hope to visit um, Israel and Jordan. Going to Egypt again and going to the new massive, what looks like an amazing um, museum. So um, it would be really good to kind of go and check that out and Cairo. And then after that, just... Any travel that kind of comes my way, being really, really fortunate and lucky and privileged to be able to do that, and I hope that I can continue uh, in the future. But again, just really being grateful for every trip and for everything that I get to do.
1: Finally, moving much closer to my home and kind of heart, here's Nat from Nat Packer Travel talking of her hopes for future travel plans, which
3: are largely domestic. So, considering I live in England, this is probably going to sound really boring, but if all this craziness ends tomorrow and we could travel wherever we wanted, I would probably head straight up to Scotland, starting Edinburgh, and then just travel around the highlands, maybe even go to the lowlands for once. Yeah, I just love Scotland probably a bit too much, and it's one of the places I go to fairly often. I've not been throughout two years, so I miss it. I miss the culture, I miss the music, I miss the scenery... Glencoe is one of my favourite places in the world. It's absolutely beautiful. I miss the stories and the history and the legends. It draws me so much.
1: I put that last because it brings me on to thoughts I'd been having. I always knew 2020 was going to be a relatively fallow year for travel and for me, in part because I've simply been doing too much over the last two years and my mind needs a bit of a rest, but also so I could reevaluate my life and develop myself personally. While that doesn't mean I didn't have travel hopes and ambitions for this year it did mean that they were relatively low-key and obviously the longer the virus lingers the more low-key they'll get. One of the early casualties for my future travel plans was a desire for my friend and landlady Debbie to go to India with me in November specifically Rajasthan because that seemed to meet most of the criteria that she wanted to see out of India. Weirdly that was postponed more because she needs to spend more money on her house for her own future plans rather than anything global. I still have a hope that in early 2021 me and my friend Inga from Sweden will backpack in West Africa. She's less confident than I am about this, but even now January is a long way ahead and all manner of things could change and develop by then. I'm not thinking that far ahead, so we'll see. Watch this space. What I am contemplating though, and always was, is to explore more of the British Isles. It's a combination of always wanting to see more of it anyway. I mean, I did an entire podcast on hometown travel, for instance, highlighting the virtues of exploring locally. And of course, there's my long standing ambition to visit every county, blah, 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 in the UK. Coupled with a hangover from last year's summer adventures, hiking across the country and then going on to see the Outer Hebrides showed me that not only were there notable things to see here, which I kind of knew anyway, but that they were relatively easily accessible, at least with a bit of forethought. Now, Becky will laugh at me for this given how well I coped with the hike but the more I think about it the more I'm fancying the idea of doing another one. Not to that extent obviously but there's a long distance footpath we spent a few hours on during the hike in the Scottish Lowlands that I'd never heard of but went through some quite pretty scenery. It's called the Southern Upland Way. It's Britain's first designated coast-to-coast long distance route apparently established in 1984 and at 214 miles is a couple of days shorter than the Pennine Way as well as having about 4,000 metres less of elevation gain. I mean, it's not flat, but it's flatter. But it follows a much more logical routing as well, obviously. Certainly when we did the hike, I preferred the ambience of the lowlands more than the Pennines. I can't really explain why. I think the paths were more comfortable, maybe. That's comfortable as in pleasant, not as in, let's do this barefoot. The landscape more open. The Pennine Way is a nice route, but some of it is a bit of a trudge, as well as feeling a bit like, ooh, there's a mountain over there, let's detour and go up it. I mean, I'll happily walk the Pennine Way again, at least the first few days. I mean, I kind of have rewalked the first two. Because when we did it on the hike, that first week is an absolute sodden and misty bore lake. And, you know, I'd quite like to be able to see the scenery we walked through. There's a couple of other places in Scotland that are calling out to me too. Both involve islands. Obviously, last year I went to the Outer Hebrides, which will be the subject of an imminent podcast episode. But apart from Skye and mull, I've not really explored the inner Hebrides. I'm particularly fascinated by Colin Tyree, one of which is a designated dark sky zone, as they always felt kind of cut off from the rest of the island group, so quite remote and challenging. I've also been told that Collins A has a craft beer brewery, and obviously Islay is famous for its whisky, a substance that I like, but when I try and make notes about it in the same way I do beer, I kind of don't really have the words to describe it. Maybe I need to do a whisky appreciation course. That'll be fun. Further north, though, the other island group to catch my eye is Orkney, specifically the island of Mainland. It's weird, too, that Orkney appeals more than Shetland does. I think it's because a lot of stuff that I want to see is on Orkney and it's more accessible. I think if I went to Shetland, it would be purely for an escapist retreat, whereas Orkney would be much more about the exploration. It sounds similar to the Outer Hebrides to me from what I've read and seen, with a similar array of historical sites. Indeed, some of the oldest and best-preserved Neolithic sites in Europe, for example Scara Bray, are on Orkney mainland. It's got scenery and it's got the local culture, just with fewer people and visitor numbers, albeit in a much smaller area. Another of the British Isles I've yet to visit, but which would be trivial to explore, is the Isle of Man, It's like, it's right there. It's that close to where I grew up. You could pick up the local radio stations from Liverpool. And there's easy ferry and flight links to the place. It's a quirky little place, not part of the UK, but not an independent state. Claims to have had the oldest continually operating parliament in the world, established in 979, but no one can find any evidence of this. And it's also famed for its mythology and its fairy stories. There's even a bridge that you're supposed to thank the fairies for when you go across it. I think this is really cool. On a similar vein, but at completely the other end of the entire UK. I've not been to Cornwall since I was, you know, like six or seven, so my memories are limited to a walk to Tintagel, the beach at Crackington Haven, and the Thunderstorm, as well as the 1982 Football World Cup. There's a picture of me standing at Land's End signpost, but I have no recollection of being there. One of the reasons I've not been back, apart from the fact that it's so far away, and probably cheaper to fly to halfway around the world, is because I don't drive and I just have the impression that having a car is the best way to explore the place. But I'll worry about that later. The one other place that's in the area that I've rarely been to is Northern Ireland. It's possible I could be going there with my friend anne Law in September, but obviously that depends largely on a combination of virus and finance. She wants to see more of the Irish Republic and I figured it would make sense to see how much of both we could fit in. I've been to Belfast once, about 20 years ago, for about two days. That's my entire knowledge of Northern Ireland. I've been to the Irish Republic a few more times, but again, it's not a place I've been to a lot, despite the fact that it's, you know, right there, next door. I'm well versed in the music and the mythology, but the actual places, not so much. There are, of course, places in the world that I have high hopes of going to in the next couple of years once we can travel again. Obviously, Bolivia is my number one spot that one day I'll eventually get to. Ditto El Salvador and Pakistan. What's been interesting recently is that after my recent adventures abroad, I've kind of started to feel the number of places I actively wanted to go to was quite low. Rather, I just had a lot of places on my interest list that sounded nice, which, when I get there, I probably won't necessarily enjoy as thoroughly as I will in my head. I think that's one of my personal travel hopes, to be honest, that everywhere I go, I try to go as thoroughly as I can because I actively want to be there. I mean, I do this anyway to an extent, I don't go to places just to take them off, but I think I'm guilty of not really appreciating the ones I do go to properly. It's hard to explain, this might just be something in my head, and most things are just in my head to be honest. One place that has intrigued me for a year or so, because of its sheer distance remoteness and that no one really knows much about it, is Kiribati, a large island archipelago nation that stretches halfway across the Pacific. And I don't know if I want to go there because it's so remote and relatively unknown. Or if there's something specific there about the place that draws me in. It's something I really need to get a handle on before I make any plans to go there because, you know, it's so far away and expensive and I don't want to feel in the long run afterwards that I could have done something better with my time and money. This coming from the man who may, or may not, but let's be honest, may, have spent £10,000 on beer in the last two years. But of course, all this is about travel hopes, and the biggest hope of all is that travel is still possible, at least in the form that we've gotten used to. One of the consequences of this virus that's becoming apparent, even now, is how much of the world relies on tourism. So many businesses across the globe are severely reducing in scope, or even closing, from the largest airlines to the smallest family-run cafes. Today I got an email from the guesthouse and tour operator I stayed with in Uagadugu in Burkina Faso several years ago, to say they just had to close, but they were joining with a nearby venue to try and keep going as best that they can. Travel will still be possible, of that, there's no doubt. Once the virus has passed and the world opens up again, there'll be less to physically or legally stop people from travelling as they did before. But what will be different is the scope and style of this travel. There'll be fewer hostels, fewer restaurants, fewer places able to cope with the influx of tourists, probably fewer travellers and tourists anyway. In a way it'll be like going back in time to before cheap flights and before Instagram where people had to actively seek out adventures and experiences rather than just turning up and finding ooh there, 20 other people who want to all do the same thing. It certainly won't be as easy but maybe that's something we've all just grown too used to. Maybe we've all become complacent in our travel style and we all needed some kind of collective kick up the nates. On Twitter I get the impression that one thing many people are hoping that will change in travel is that we'll become much more sustainable that the days of excessive long haul is over. Yes, I know where Kiribati is, and yes, I'm indifferent to the idea of sailing to and around there. And that what will survive and thrive in the new industry environment are those things that are much more thoughtful, considered, rather than something cheap and quick just to make a fast book. I'm somewhat more cynical in that I feel that, by our very nature, we as humans like fast and cheap, regardless of consequences, but hopefully I'll be proven wrong. Who knows what this all means to people who make their living from travel the bloggers, the Instagrammers, the travel agents, the publicists I mean, places will always need publicising and word of mouth is a great and cheap compared with the alternative's marketing tool so the world will always need influences but quite what form they'll take is definitely open to question And no, I don't know if I personally will benefit from or be hindered by the new way of working with travel but I guess we'll find out Foot pictures on OnlyFans How much do I value my own integrity? Anyway, on that bleak note I think it's time to draw this episode to a close. Next week, oh, you know by now, assume it'll be about the Outer Hebrides and let's work from there. Until then, don't cough in my direction and if you're feeling off colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. I'm pretty bad at that sort of thing myself so I'll understand perfectly if you don't. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Kirkby and studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus, by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes of this podcast will be available on your podcast service of choice or alternatively on my website barefoot-backpacker.com If you want to contact me I live on Twitter at RTWBarefoot, or you can email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com. Until next time, have a safe journey. Bye for now.